Welcome back. In the last lecture, we saw that in the 1990s, a few maverick scientists were starting to embrace chaos, looking for a way to use it to advantage rather than ignoring it or avoiding it or squelching it as scientists and engineers had traditionally been taught to do. This lecture is about another possible use of chaos. Here, the theme will be encryption, how to use chaos to send secret messages. Before I get into the details of this story, though, I'd, I have to tell you I'm really kind of excited about this lecture, in part because I think it's one of the niftiest developments in the whole subject in the past decade or two, but also because it happens that some of the work was done by people who are friends of mine, and so gives me pleasure to be able to tell you about their, their research. Well, encryption. That's something that's on our mind all the time these days. We expect to do online banking or shopping without any fear of eavesdroppers or thieves stealing our, our passwords or, God forbid, our bank account numbers or other important information. Although, as you know, these sorts of things do happen, but not because of the encryption. The encryption, if you use encryption, and a lot of people forget to turn on the encryption at their home wireless network, but if you do use proper encryption and pretty much all online banking, does use encryption. Of course it does. That's, that's the only way it can work. Those encryption algorithms are based on methods that come from a different branch of math than we've talked about. It's not from chaos theory. It's from the theory of numbers. Number theory, we call it, or sometimes you'll hear it called prime number theory because it especially has to do with properties of prime numbers and the difficulty of factoring big composite numbers into their prime factors. The math behind this tells us that there's a sort of provable level of high security to these methods. We know that they're very, very tough to break. We're sure of it. So that level of encryption that comes from number theory is, with good reason, thought to be very safe and strong. And so similarly, in addition to banking and other things that we do through our computer, we expect our cell phone calls to be private, even though in principle, you know, the information is going out over the air, you'd think that maybe a determined eavesdropper could intercept our phone calls and possibly use them to embarrass us or whatever, potentially decoding them after pulling them out of the air. Well, today's digital technology makes it pretty tough to decrypt a cell phone call, but it wasn't always like that. I don't know if you remember this, but in the uh, early 90s, which is when the research I'm about to describe started, there were some big stories about people having their cell phone calls intercepted. I don't know if this comes back to you. So you remember when reporters intercepted Princess Diana's cell phone conversations with her, her lover, James Gilby? It made the news because apparently his pet name for her was Squidgy, which is a term of affection that I'm not so familiar with. But I think in British English, it may mean something like soft and squishy and in a good way. So anyway, people made a lot of fun of Princess Diana for being squidgy. Well, there was an even more embarrassing incident where Prince Charles had a cell phone call to his lover, now wife, Camilla Parker Bowles, that became public in the same way. I, it was so nasty, the stuff that he was saying to her, that I don't think I'm going to remind you, but you may want to look that up if you, <laughs> if you don't remember what I'm talking about. It was bad. Anyway, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> now, in 
Now, Newt Gingrich had his own problems. Remember, he was Speaker of the House around that time, and he was under investigation for alleged ethics violations, and his cell phone calls were intercepted and made public by Democratic loyalists who wanted to humiliate him. So in all of these cases, even a minimal level of privacy would have been very welcome. I'm not talking about military or banking level encryption. Just anything that would have been enough to thwart a casual eavesdropper like these reporters were. They don't really know how to decode messages, and they didn't need to. They could just pull them out of the air and and hear what was being said. That's what you want to make sure you can avoid, at the very least. So chaos has two potential uses in regard to private communications. First of all, chaos sounds noisy. We haven't talked about the sound of chaos. I've been mostly focusing here about the shape of chaos in state space, the strange attractors and so on, or graphed as a time series. We see some erratic wiggle. But chaos also has a sound, an auditory dimension to it. And you could hear it by playing a wave of chaos through a loudspeaker. You know, if you made a voltage signal that was erratic and drove a loudspeaker with it, you'd hear chaos. Now, what does it sound like? Well, it sounds like static. It sounds like noise because it's made of all frequencies. That is, noise is something called white noise, like white light being made of all colors of the spectrum. White noise is made of all frequencies. So chaos has some character sort of like that. It's, it's made of all these different frequencies, not just it's like a sine wave. It's a single frequency. That's just a pure tone, like a musical note that would come if you hit a tuning fork, a very simple sound. But, but chaos is an admixture of all infinitely many different frequencies. And so it has this noisy sound. And why is that good? It makes it good for concealing information. It can blanket a message over its whole frequency band. That is, all the different frequencies in whatever the intended message are can be covered by the chaos, like a mask, like a cloak. So an eavesdropper hearing a combined message with chaos on top of it might not even realize a message was being sent because it was shrouded in chaos. And even if the eavesdropper did realize there was a message buried under there, it would be very hard to pull the message out of the chaos. That's the hope. There was a a movie along these lines that I found very haunting. Maybe you saw it. It didn't have to do with chaos theory. It predated chaos theory. But did you ever see the movie called The Conversation? It's a, a Francis Ford Coppola movie. Gene Hackman is in the movie. He's the star, and he plays a professional spy, an eavesdropper, who's a sound engineer. And Cindy Williams, who you may remember from Laverne and Shirley, she is walking around with her boyfriend in a street fair. I think it takes place in San Francisco, if I remember. They're, they're on a very noisy street with street musicians pounding on bongos and a lot of sound of people. And it's, it's the sort of place you would go if you wanted to have a private conversation. If you thought someone might be spying on you or trying to listen in, you would talk in a noisy place like that with the hope that even if they did spy, they would have trouble pulling your conversation out of the noise. And that, of course, is what the movie is about. Gene Hackman has a directional microphone. He records all the noise. He records what he hopes is the underlying message. And I won't tell you the rest of the story. It's quite a, quite a movie. Well, so this, this old idea that you can make something secret by burying it under noise, that's the first possible use of chaos to use chaos as a mask. The second possible use 
is to use chaos as a carrier, a novel carrier. Normally, like with radio, you use sine waves to carry songs or whatever else is being sent over the radio. That's the traditional way of doing things in either AM or FM radio. Now, a sine wave has just one frequency. Chaos, being made of infinitely many frequencies, you would think might have some advantages. It might be more versatile. So that's another possible idea. At this point, we're just brainstorming. Is there anything we could do with chaos with regard to communications? Well, this line of thinking first occurred to someone named Lou Pecora around 1988. So Lou, who's one of these friends of mine, is a very playful, lighthearted physicist, good-natured, self-effacing guy, a joker, who works at the Naval Research Lab in Washington. And Lou's background, nothing to do with communications. Lou is trained as a solid-state physicist. He's supposed to work on things like spin waves and magnets and positron annihilation and solids and that, that kind of thing. So he has a background in solid state. But in the late 80s, you remember what was happening then, the late 80s, James Glick's book had come out about chaos, and chaos theory was the hottest thing there was in all of science. Everybody was talking about chaos. And certainly any physicist was very aware of chaos theory. What's it all about? So Lou was curious. And I think it's possible he might have been less than excited about some of his research. I'm not sure about that. But in any case, he was very excited to learn about chaos and curious. So he, he thought, is there something I could do that would please my employer, the Naval Research Lab? I mean, if I'm going to get into chaos, I've got to justify it. Why am I looking at this thing? So he had to find some kind of practical justification. It could be military or otherwise. The, the Navy was willing to consider things not just purely military, but at least it should be practical. Otherwise, why should he devote his research time to chaos, which seemed pretty not only newfangled, but maybe trendy in a bad way, to, at least to some people. So as soon as Lou posed the question to himself this way, what could I do with chaos? Well, that was a new question. People hadn't been asking that question. And he immediately thought of communications for the reasons that we just suggested. And then that made him instantly think about synchronization because all communications depend on synchronization. They require a transmitter and a receiver to be able to synchronize so that messages can be conveyed. They have to be locked into the right frequency for instance, when you listen to a song on the radio, what's going on? You have to tune the radio, and you have to tune to a particular station. That locks your receiver, your radio, onto the frequency of the, the broadcast transmission. Once the synchrony is established, then the song on the radio is extracted. You can hear it by a process that electrical engineers call demodulation. They have to demodulate the song from the radio wave that's carrying it. So the first step then in Lou's vision would be, can we figure out a way to synchronize, not sine waves, but two chaotic systems? And that also was a question that people hadn't really thought about at that point. Now, I hope you realize that this already starts to sound a bit strange because synchronized chaos, that sounds like an oxymoron. How could you have chaos in sync? And in fact, if you think about it a little more, you might say, wait a second, that's not even possible because if I have two 
systems that are both chaotic. So this one's the, say, the transmitter. This one's the receiver. They're both supposedly chaotic. How could they stay in sync? There's the butterfly effect is the most basic thing about chaos. So any little difference between them will snowball over time, and they're going to not be able to stay in sync. So people thought, to the extent that they even thought about a question like this, that the butterfly effect would destroy any hope of synchrony. Now, that would be true if the chaotic systems were independent. Yes, it's true. Two independent chaotic systems not communicating in any way could not stay in sync. Any little disturbance would cause them to drift apart quite fast. But perhaps the butterfly could be dispatched by linking the systems together somehow. They're not independent. And of course they're not independent. They're communicating after all. That's the whole point. We're trying to do communications. So this butterfly argument is wrong. There's nothing that forbids two systems from being both separately chaotic and yet perfectly in sync with each other. It would be like if you were to watch a modern dancer, you know, moving in some weird chaotic way. There could be another modern dancer who is very sensitive to what the first modern dancer is doing, and they're both moving chaotically in the same way. They're both chaotic, but they're synchronized. There's nothing in principle impossible about that. So Pakora had to try to figure out a way to do this now. And he and his postdoctoral fellow, Tom Carroll, tried for weeks in computer simulation to try to get various pairs of chaotic systems to synchronize with each other, moving in lockstep. But, but it didn't work without any success. They kept trying. They tried everything they could think of. They were trying a Lorenz system with a logistic map or maybe the Rustler attractor we talked about. They were trying all kinds of different combinations different parameter values, changing the knobs. Could they get anything to synchronize? No, they could not. So it's typical of research. It's frustrating. You spend a lot of your time being stuck, and that was the way Lou Pecora felt at this point. He was stuck. He was frustrated. He had a conference to go to, and he went, and he's listening to the talks, and uh, he's in a bad mood because... He wants to solve his problem. He can't really enjoy the talks or learn anything because he keeps thinking about his problem, but he can't solve it. So the conference ends, and he comes home, and uh, it's late at night. He's just caught a long flight, shows up on his doorstep. It's maybe like midnight or 1 o'clock. He comes in the house, and his daughter, baby daughter, is already crying. It's the middle of the night. And... So his wife says, it's okay, Lou, you know, I'll give her a bottle or whatever she needs. You just go to sleep. You take it easy. But he said, no, I don't think so. Let me, I could do it. Let me, maybe it'll help. I'm just going to sit here and unwind with her. So he's holding the baby in his arms, giving her the bottle, rocking her to sleep. And then he figured it out. Then he solved his problem. He had a brainstorm. He thought, I need to drive the chaos with chaos that comes from exactly the same kind of system. I need to drive the receiver with a signal that comes from a matched chaotic system. They have to be chaotic in the same way. I'm going to drive chaos with chaos, and then with the same chaos, then I can get it to synchronize, maybe. So they tried it. Pecora and Carol tried it, and the idea worked. In computer simulations, it worked. And then Tom Carroll, who's very good at building things, built electronic circuits. And in the experiments on real electronic circuits, they found a way to synchronize two identical, or in the case of real circuits, nearly identical, as identical as they could make them, they found a way to synchronize two identical chaotic systems. The communication was a one-way 
street, as you'd expect, it was a chaotic transmitter driving a chaotic receiver. So they were able to establish synchrony. Remember now, that's step one. Once we get two synchronized chaotic systems, now we're ready to try to do communications. Okay. Well, Lou, being very naive about communications, thinks to himself, I don't know, what should I send as a signal? How about a sine wave? It's a sort of a physicist's first impulse. I'll send a sine wave as my signal. Can I send a tuning fork sound to the receiver? So he sends the signal, and he buries it under chaos, like we talked about, and figures, there, nobody will know that there's a, a little tuning fork sound in there. So he starts talking it up around the Naval Research Lab, and his superiors think it sort of sounds interesting. And so they tell him one day that someone is going to come to your lab and see your system. And you're not to talk to the man or ask him any questions. Just let him do his work. Don't bother him. Don't ask him anything. And Lou says, you know, okay, but um, how do I even refer to him? What do I call him? They say, don't call him anything. Call him Bill. All right, so, so so Bill shows up one day young guy with a lot of equipment and uh, asked to see the system. And he, Lou says, you know, I, I dare you to figure out what's hidden under the chaos. This young engineer, mysterious Dr. X, they, Pecora and Carol started calling him. Dr. X sets up a few little experiments. And within about maybe 10, 15 minutes, he says, you've got a sine wave hiding under there. And uh, Lou, of course, is flabbergasted. But so this was not a secure way of doing encryption at all. Elementary for any code breaker to break. Still, there was some interest in any code. I mean, the National Security Agency is interested in these things. And they arranged for Lou to come to this ultra-secretive organization to tell them about his ideas. So he goes to the National Security Agency, and he told me that for him, it was like speaking into a black hole, that information goes in, but none comes out. That you can say stuff to them, but they won't react and they don't say anything to you. This led to a scene that reminds me of Monty Python. So Lou is, for whatever reason, he forgot something at the, at the NSA. And he needed to get back in touch with his contact there, who let's call Colonel Y. And, uh, but he had, couldn't remember how to reach Colonel Y. And so he thinks... Um, you know, National Security Agency, how am I going to get to Colonel Y? Well, maybe I'll look in the phone book for the National Security Agency. And it turns out that it's in the phone book, which was a surprise in itself. He calls the desk, information desk at the National Security Agency. Hello, an operator picks up. Yes, may I speak to Colonel Y? The operator says, I can't confirm or deny that any person named Colonel Y works here. So Lou says, okay, you know, I understand that, but I came here just a few weeks ago and uh, I really need to speak to him. I understand why you can't tell me, but could you just send me the number or is there some way? He, he will want to talk to me. Can you give me the number for Colonel Y? I cannot confirm or deny that Colonel Y works here. So Lou says, well, is this the information desk? And the operator says, yes. What information would you like? Well, So Pakora and Carroll's work on synchronized chaos was published in 1990. The part about synchronized chaos was published, not the part about communications. And it became one of the most highly cited papers in the history of chaos theory, thousands of times it's been cited. 
But their further work on using chaos for encryption was not published for quite a while for security reasons and maybe because of patent possibilities. So it was left to others to show the first experimental demonstration of chaotic encryption. And this was reported in 1993. It was done by a graduate student named Kevin Cuomo working at MIT with his advisor, Al Oppenheim, in electrical engineering. I was at MIT at that time and had the fortune to know these two gentlemen and work with them even a little bit. Cuomo was a student in my chaos class. And I remember when he came to my attention, there were maybe 60 or 70 people in the class, but he stood out because at the, uh, in preparation for the final exam, where I told the students they were allowed to bring one page of notes of anything that they wanted to write, handwritten formulas or whatever. He showed me very proudly his handwritten page because he said, I have the whole course right here on this one side of one sheet. And it was all the formulas were written inside of little boxes with very precise machine-like handwriting, like as if it was typed. And I had learned over the years of grading students that when a student writes like that, they're usually good. It doesn't always work, but it's a pretty good rule of thumb. By the way, if you have messy handwriting, don't worry about that. Messy handwriting signifies nothing. With messy handwriting, you might be a genius or you might not. But if you write like a little typewriter, you're probably smart. At least that's my rule of thumb. <laughs> Other teachers out there may disagree. Anyway, so back to Cuomo, though. What did he do in his thesis? He built a pair of matched electronic circuits that ran the Lorenz system. Basically, each little voltage at different points in the circuit was one of those variables in the three-variable Lorenz system that we talked about back in uh, around lecture seven and eight thereabout. So this already was a feat in itself. No one had been able to build a Lorenz circuit, a circuit that implemented the Lorenz system. That was, in effect, an analog computer for the Lorenz system. It turns out it has a very large dynamic range and there are electronics difficulties. People had tried, but no one succeeded until Cuomo. So he built the first Lorenz circuit, but then he built a second one. One was going to be a transmitter, one a receiver. And then he showed that you could use this to transmit and mask, that is, conceal human speech. It was a dramatic thing. He came back to my class a year later as a visitor, and he demonstrated his circuit to our class. So... First, he showed that he could synchronize the two circuits. He, he demonstrated that with an oscilloscope. And then he really brought the house down when he showed how you could use it to mask human speech. The speech signal that he chose was um, a recording of a hit song at that time by Mariah Carey called Emotions. Ooh, I, I'm not even going to try to sing it for you. <laughs> but anyway, so Mariah Carey had this song. And um, one student in the class, apparently with a different taste in music, said, is that the signal or the noise? Well, anyway, so it was the signal, but then Cuomo buried it under the hiss of chaos. You just hear that. And when, when he played the combined signal plus noise, you had no idea that there was Mariah Carey buried under there. You just heard this hiss. Yet, when the combined song was transmitted to the receiver, combined song plus mask, the receiver synchronized almost perfectly to regenerate the mask, only the mask. In other words, the mask, which is Lorenz Chaos, was sent across the wire, and when the 
receiver received the mask plus Mariah Carey, it regenerated just the mask. That's the nifty idea. It just regenerates the mask, so you could sort of electronically subtract the mask, and there underneath it is the Mariah Carey song. And when he played that version, the combined signal with the mask taken off, it really sounded like it was, it was clearly Mariah Carey. It was instantly recognizable. Though a little bit fuzzy, it wasn't perfect synchronization, and of course it couldn't be, because remember that he wasn't sending a perfect, clean Lorenz mask to the receiver. There was a little bit of, so to speak, contamination, with all due respect to Mariah Carey. There was contamination of the chaos, if you want to think of it that way, with human speech. And so there was no way a Lorenz circuit could regenerate all of that. It was sent this kind of corrupted signal. But it did a very, very good job of regenerating the chaos, enough that it could be subtracted and you'd hear, you'd unmask the message. Well, the next breakthrough came in 1998. It was a laboratory study done by Greg Van Wiggeren and Roger Shiroy, who I mentioned in the last lecture. Raj is the, was the advisor. He's a physicist. At that time, they were working at Georgia Tech. And I'd just like to tell you for a second about Raj. He's one of my best friends. A very sweet, gentle, kind person who I always feel a little ashamed of myself when I'm with him at a conference because no matter how bad a lecture we've just heard, he always finds something positive to say about it, something that he could learn. He, feels he, he can learn from anybody. He sees the good in everything. But I don't want you to think he's a pushover because he's not. He's a very incisive, creative, bold scientist with a daring creative streak and with great hands, which is really the highest compliment you could give to an experimentalist. He has the magic touch, the golden touch, and his experiments seem to yield gold every time. So in this case, what he and his student Greg Van Wiggeren were doing was trying to extend the earlier work of Pecora and Carroll and Cuomo and Oppenheim, who had all been working on electronic circuits. They were going to extend chaotic encryption to lasers. Lasers communicating with each other through fiber optics instead of electronic circuits. So in their approach, messages are converted into light. Instead of an electronic signal, you make an optical version of the message. And then they're masked by the wild fluctuations of a chaotic laser. Remember, I mentioned in the last lecture that lasers can be driven into chaos. That was one of Roy's specialties, to study chaos in lasers. So he made a chaotic laser that was then used to mask this message. Then the combined message plus mask was transmitted down the optical fiber and decoded by a matched chaotic laser. This system had the advantage, compared to electronic circuits, that it transmitted 150 million bits per second, thousands of times faster than you could do with electronic circuits. So there was a hope of tremendous speeds using optical communications. This idea of chaotic encryption through optical fibers has now been extended to the real world. It's been tested in the real world network of Athens, Greece, in the optical fiber network that's already installed there. What was striking about this study is that it was the first to demonstrate that chaotic encryption could work outside the controlled environment of a lab. It worked with the existing infrastructure. Nothing had to be tweaked. It just worked, confirming its feasibility. The method was fast and reliable. By now, the engineers that did this study were able to get the transmission speeds up to one gigabyte of encrypted information per second. 
which is about the same as commercial transmissions right now. But it was, this was now encrypted. And they only lost about one byte in every 10 million. So it's fast and reliable. Still, questions remain about the security of this kind of encryption, about chaotic encryption. Remember uh, Lou Pecora's unfortunate attempt to conceal that sine wave. That was easily unmasked. Well, it's turned out that other forms of chaotic encryption have also not been that tough to unmask. Kevin Short, a mathematician at University of New Hampshire, showed that he could break essentially every chaotic code that's been proposed to date. I'm not sure that he's done that yet with these most recent studies from the Athens optical fiber network, but he was able to unmask Rod Roy and Greg Van Wiggeren's earlier optical fiber work on chaos. So, so it seems likely that this method is not very secure. And that was something that I'd been warned about from the very beginning. When I used to talk to Al Oppenheim and, and uh, Kevin Cuomo, Al admonished me in my excitement about all this from the very beginning. He said, you must never call this secure. This is not secure. Secure is a very special thing. Secure means that if a spy comes and kills someone and takes the encoder and brings it back to their base and tries to decode the message, they still can't decode it. That's secure. That's what secure would mean. This is maybe private, minimal privacy at best. And we don't know how good it is. We're just trying to learn. So, so I remember that admonishment very well to this day. And Oppenheim's intuition was right, that these methods have not proved to be secure. So, but that doesn't mean they'll always be insecure. This is a newborn baby. We don't quite know what its use will be. And if its security can be strengthened, it might be useful either on its own or as another layer of security in the e-commerce transactions that race around the world every day, which, as I say, are currently encrypted by these number, th- <clears throat> excuse me, number theory algorithms that are quite mathematically heavy and, and in some ways not so elegant or fast. So this could have a role, the chaotic encryption. In any case, with the growing concerns about cyber terrorism, national security, cell phone privacy, internet privacy, this potential application of chaos is still certainly worth exploring. All right, well, in the next lecture, we'll turn our attention to another role for chaos, this time chaos in health and disease in the human body. Is chaos good for you or bad for you? The answer might surprise you. I'll see you next time.